Welcome to Built to Go, a van life podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Wagg, coming to you from the College of Curiosity. This time it's episode 80. 80. That's four score episodes. And we're going to talk about 10 weird tips that will improve your van life. We're also going to talk about how to properly use fuses, what their purpose is, and how you should pick them out, a tale from the road involving a car seat, and a product review of a water filter that does things a little bit differently. Hi folks, welcome back. Thanks for joining me once again. I think it's time for another list episode, and you guys know that I love these episodes, and I haven't done them for a while, and it's time. It's time! It's time for me to count. It's time for me to channel my inner Casey Kasem and count down from number 10 to number 1 of the 10 weird things list that I have gathered for you today. And if you don't know who Casey Kasem is, wow, I feel old, but I understand time moves on. And did you know he played Shaggy on Scooby-Doo? Anyway, onward with number 10. This weird thing is a good tip. You know how when you buy electronics, they come with these little white packets that kind of look like sugar packets and they say, do not eat on them for some reason. And then if you actually try to eat them, they're in these packages that you can't really rip open like you want to. Well, those are silica gel packs and they're in there to absorb moisture. And they have on the packet usually throw away and that's what you're supposed to do. You get the thing, you throw it away and you're done and goes out to the landfill and lives there forever, blah, blah, blah. But you don't have to throw them away. They're just as useful after you take them out of the box. Here's the deal. You can put them in the drawers of your van or any place in your van where you want to keep things dry and they will continue to absorb moisture. Now, they do have a limit. Once they've absorbed as much moisture as they can, then they don't absorb anymore. That's kind of how physics works. But they also can dry out. So every once in a while, you can gather all your silica packs and put them on the dashboard on a sunny day or leave them outside for a bit. Or you can even bake them in the oven, although I'm not sure the packets can handle that. Anyway, there's no reason to throw these things out. If you've got space, toss one in your toolbox. That's what I do. Every drawer of my toolbox has a silica gel pack in it that I got from some electronic device that I bought. So hey, recycle, reuse, and do not eat. Number nine. There is a place in everybody's van to put muddy or wet shoes, and that is on the door sills. I do this all the time. Now, what, what do I mean by door sills? Well, that's the plastic piece of trim that touches your door, and it's in between your seat and your door, or in the back where the slider is, or the sliders, depending on your van, there's usually a big piece of plastic there that acts kind of as a step to get in. Put your muddy and wet shoes there, and you put them linearly. You don't put them side by side. You put them one in front of the other. They fit there. Anything they drip off of there is just going to drip off onto plastic that's easy to clean, and you can shut the door, and it's not going to be a problem. In my van, I keep my boots on the passenger side door sill. Now, I usually travel alone, so nobody's getting in and out of there, and that space there it's just perfect. They're out of sight. I don't see them. They're not going to fall out or anything. And any dirt or grime that comes off of them just goes onto a surface that's meant to be cleaned anyway. Number eight. This is actually a pretty good tip and it probably should have been number one, but eh, whatever. They sell these things that are USB sticks that are 512 gigabytes, but they're short. They're stubby. 
and they are great for backing things up while you're on the road. For example, if you do what I do when you go out and make videos and take lots of pictures, well, you don't really want to keep all that stuff on one device because then if you lose that device, you've lost all those photos. And the photos are worth more than the device because if you add up the cost of your time and how long it took you to get there to take those pictures, it quickly comes out that it's actually cheaper to buy another GoPro than to reproduce everything. So it's a good idea to back things up. But that means you have to have a hard drive and it takes up space and there's a cable. And well, this thing solves all that. There's a link in the show notes if you don't know what I'm talking about. But you've seen USB sticks. These are very, very short USB sticks, and you can plug them into your computer, and they sit there, and you don't ever have to take them out. It's like adding an extra 512 gigabyte hard drive to your computer just for backups. So I have one. They're not that expensive. Uh, another thing that works is they also make stubby SD cards. So if you have an SD card reader, you can do that as well. But anyway, consider this idea because it will save you a ton of space and you're more likely to back things up if you don't have to hook up cables. Number seven, gray water evaporates. Folks at Burning Man have been doing this for years. Now, at Burning Man, if you're not familiar with, is this big festival that happens on a dry salt bed, basically. And there's no water or anything out there for anybody. And they have a policy of not allowing gray water to be dumped on the playa, which is good, because with that many people there, you would definitely have a problem. So what people have learned to do is they dump their gray water into basically dog pools or kiddie pools or, you know, big containers like that and leave them out in the sun. And what happens is most of that liquid evaporates over the course of the day. Now, this isn't going to work as well if you're in, say, South Carolina in July, but if you're in Nevada in June, yeah, this will work pretty well because you're dealing with about 10% humidity. So it's a great way that if you're going to be staying in a place for a while and you need to get rid of gray water, this will help you reduce the bulk of it. It may not help reduce it all, and of course you're going to have some kind of slimy scum left in your container. But hey, it beats carrying around 5, 10, 20 gallons of water when you don't need to. Number six. So I know lots of folks like to have dash cams and like to have rear view mirrors and stuff that have a rear view camera in them and all that kind of stuff. But there's always been this problem of how do you get power up to the top of your windshield? And while, yes, yeah, sure, you can run power from your fuse block and then up the pillar and then into the headliner and over, it's a little bit of a pain in the butt. And there's actually an easier way to get power. I've been doing this for years, and that is your dome light. Whatever kind of light you have in your headliner has constant 12-volt power. It is not switched power. And you can tap into that and use it for your whatever, whatever you need to have power up there for. So I've noticed that most driving cameras are basically USB, and I just installed a 12-volt socket up in the headliner, and then I plug in a USB adapter into that, and then whatever I want to power plugs into that. So in my case, I have a Garmin dash cam and the wire goes up into the headliner and plugs in there and that's it. No wires down the pillars. And that's a really good thing for folks with newer vans that have airbags in the way. You do not want to run wires anywhere near airbags because it could interfere with how the airbag inflates in an emergency. So using the power that's right up in the headliner actually makes a lot of sense. Make sure you fuse it properly, of course, and make sure you don't put any high amperage devices up there. But I can tell you a dash cam works just fine. 
Number five, mosquito nets. You see a lot of stuff on YouTube about how to keep mosquitoes out of your van, kind of magnetic screens and window socks and all these things. But when you're sleeping in your van at night, mosquitoes in your van isn't the real problem. It's mosquitoes on you. So why not just use a mosquito net? We used to use these in Boy Scout camp all the time. We slept in wall tents that didn't have any screens and anything could come in anytime it wanted to. So we would rig up mosquito nets on our beds and we'd crawl into the mosquito net at night and no mosquitoes could get through there. Well, you can do the same thing in your van. You can just hang a mosquito net on hooks over your sleeping area and then, you know, leave the doors open, leave the windows open, leave it all wide open because no insects that get in there at night are going to be able to get you. Now, yeah, in the morning you're going to have to deal with whatever's in there, but that's not as big a deal. I can tell you that I slept very soundly and securely in a mosquito net and they're like 10 bucks. So you can sleep without insects for 10 bucks and it'll go right up and come right down whenever you need it to. Number four. If you have a kettle and you boil water and let's say you make a cup of coffee and then you've got water left in your kettle, pour it back in your fresh water tank. That water is completely, perfectly good. While at home you might dump it down the sink or whatever, just remember that water on the road is precious and there's no reason that unused boiled water can't go right back into your fresh water tank and thus save that amount of water. And here's another weird little tip. If you happen to have a van with a black tank like an RV, Let's say you boil spaghetti. Pouring that hot water into your black tank can be a good thing for the black tank. Black tanks work best when there's a lot of water in there. It's kind of exactly the opposite of a composting toilet. And pouring that extra water in there, especially if it's warm, can help break things up and get things to flush better. So just a quick thought there that isn't, that isn't a number. We're not counting that one. Number three, cutting boards make great desks. This is a wonderful trick, and I have worked many, many hours like this. If you have a cutting board or a sink cutout or something like that, something that's bigger than your laptop, basically, you can set it on your lap and set your laptop on that and have a very stable, comfortable working spot. It's much more comfortable than putting it on your lap directly. Not only do you have heat to worry about, but you also just have kind of this floppiness. And if you don't like the feel of a cutting board on your legs... Put a pillow under there. If you put a pillow and then a cutting board and then a computer on top of that, you have a very comfortable working space that you can do for hours. This is especially useful if you're traveling with two people and one of them's in the passenger seat and wants to use the computer while you're driving. That works well there. But it also works well in the back. Let's like let's say you just need to you just want to dash off some emails, but you want to be a little bit more comfortable and you don't feel like setting up whatever you have for a table. This works great. Number two, two bungee cords make a great clothesline. I discovered this recently, and I think I've talked about it before, but I don't have a clothesline in my little tiny van because, you know, why would I? But I sometimes do need to dry clothes, and I realize that if I take two bungee cords and stretch them between hooks on opposite sides of the van, they create a pinch point, and I can put, say, a wet t-shirt in between them, and that will keep the wet t-shirt in place while I drive down the road. And since I was in the desert recently, I could hang whatever I wanted back there and it would dry nicely. So you don't need to get a special clothesline or worry about like, how am I going to attach this and what am I going to attach the other end to? Just make sure you have lots of hooks or even uh, bolt holes. 
and you can stretch two bungee cords between them and have a very secure mobile clothesline that works great. And number one, and I, I put this as number one just because it's the safest one, high beams save lives. If you live in a place with lots of deer and moose, you probably know this, but at night you should have your high beams on whenever you can so that you will light up the eyes of deer. Low beams do not light up the eyes of deer as well as high beams. So having your high beams on can give you an extra two or 300 feet to react to deer in the road. And folks who live in cities probably don't know this, but if you live in the country, this is something you pick up pretty quick. Of course you want to dim your high beams whenever there's a car coming, but for those times when there isn't, having your high beams on can absolutely save your life. It doesn't work as well for moose, unfortunately, because their eyes tend to be so high up, they're above your beam. In fact, people say that the last thing you see before you hit a moose is trees in the road, and that's actually their legs. But that is an important tip. That's a safety tip. So that one gets number one. Tech Talk. Fuses. I talk about fuses a lot. Fuses are another safety thing. You should definitely fuse every electrical connection you have in the van. It's very important. But how do you size the fuse? For example, let's say that you want to put in a fan, okay? And it's a pretty big fan, so it draws four amps. So the way a fuse works is that if too much amperage is drawn, the piece of metal in the fuse melts and it breaks the connection and thus everything is safe. That's the idea. So if your fan is supposed to run at 4 amps, what size fuse would you put in there? Well, you might say 5 amps, right? Because it's just a little bit more. And if there was a short or a problem, once it got to 5 amps, you'd be like, oh, okay, that's good. And that would be totally fine, by the way. There's nothing wrong with that. But that's not what you're supposed to be protecting with a fuse. It's a little counterintuitive. You don't want to look at the amp rating of the device so much as you want to look at the amperage rating of the wire. You're trying to protect the wire. Your fuse should be about the same amperage as the wire. And it's written on the wire in most cases. All good quality wire will actually have it written right on the wire. It's like 20 amps, 40 amps, 50 amps, whatever it is. Basically, the fuse should never be higher than the amount of amps written on the wire, or at least not much higher. In this example, let's say you're using wire that's good for 20 amps, to, but it's more likely to pop. For example, if you got your finger stuck in the fan, which I don't recommend, it would use a lot more amps suddenly and it could pop that fuse. But it was actually a safe situation. It didn't have to pop the fuse because the wire was not going to heat up yet. The thing is that shorts... Like if you accidentally drill a screw through the wall through a wire, which is a classic short circumstance, that's going to just instantly draw a ton of amperage and it's going to blow almost any fuse. I have blown 150 amp fuses, which is a bad, bad thing. You have to do bad things for that to happen. Just remember in general that the fuse is supposed to protect the wires, but it can always be lower if you're trying to protect the device as well. But you should never have the fuse be much higher amperage than the wire. If you're in that situation, then either your wires are too small, your fuse is too big, or there's something else going on that is not right. Tales from the road. I seem to be safety-minded today. Here's the, this tale from the road is also a safety thing. 
I way back in let's see, it must have been this must have been about 1999 or so. I had taken our Subaru Forester in for service, and it was at the dealer. It was one of those deals where it came with service and all that. And they clean the inside of the car, and they wash it, and they give you the whole thing, and you know whatever. So fine, I go get the car, and then I have to go pick up my kid. So my son Fisher at the time was three. I go pick him up from daycare. Very carefully put him into his car seat. He was always in a car seat. And we drive away. And as we're driving home, hey, look, a deer, because we kind of lived in the woods at that point. So I step on the brakes a little harder than normal, and the deer pass by. But the first thing I notice is that my son, Fisher, flies forward and bashes into the passenger seat. And he was totally fine. I know that I secured him in his car seat. So how the heck did he get out of his car seat and fly forward. So I pull over and look in the back seat, and he is in his car seat. He didn't fly out of his car seat. His car seat was no longer attached to the car. So what happened? Well, there was a clue in this story at the beginning. I had just come from the dealer, and the dealer cleans the inside and outside of the car when you do service, and they vacuum the seats. And somebody at the dealer had unhooked the car seat vacuumed the seat, and then put the car seat back where it was, but didn't hook it back up with the seat belt. So I called the dealer and I said, hey, I have to tell you what happened here. This is kind of a dangerous situation. And they're like, oh, we tell our employees never to put car seats back if they have to take them out because it's not safe. And I'm like, I agree. But if they're going to do that, they should lay them on their sides or put them in the trunk or something. So it's obvious that this car seat that you've been using for weeks and you've known has been hooked up for weeks. It isn't hooked up anymore. Anyway. I would like to pass that along as a little bit of a safety tip. If anybody has control of your vehicle other than you, and you're using a car seat, check to make sure the car seat is actually connected to the seatbelt still, because someone may have moved it for whatever reason and just put it back in the same place, and you might not notice. And from that point on, I always checked. After I put the kid in the car seat, I would yank on the car seat to make sure it was attached and uh, never happened again. Product review. All right, I've been using this thing long enough that I can talk about it. I picked up a Brita Stream Ultramax water filter dispenser, dark blue, extra large 25 cup, one count. I love these Amazon descriptions. This is a Brita water filter, but it's a little different than the ones you might have seen. The normal Brita water filter, oh, my accent, oh, the normal Brita water filter is a carafe that you put in the fridge and you fill it with water, but slowly because the water has to go through the filter to get into the carafe. It works. It's fine. I know there's other filters people like better and some people like the Brita's. That's all good. But this one is different and it's especially good for van life. This one does not work the same way. First off, it's very narrow. It's meant to sit on the shelf of your fridge and it has a spigot. So the idea is you fill it with water, you put it in the fridge, and then anytime you want cold filtered water, you open the spigot and fill your cup and that's it. It also is completely closed. There's a big cover on the top and then it has a little slidey door so it won't leak. Even if you slosh it around, it won't leak. Now, in a van under like off-road conditions, yeah, the cover could come off, but you could secure it with a bungee cord. The point is, is that you can make this thing so it will not leak. 
But here's the part that's different and really special. The water isn't filtered until it comes out. In the carafe, it'll hold all the water, but it's when you activate the spigot that it goes through the filter. This means two things. One, you can fill it as fast as you want and it doesn't matter. And two, you get a kind of filtration that's just kind of passive, which is water just sitting there. If you are concerned about chlorine, chlorine smell, you don't like it, whatever, the chlorine is gonna dissipate before it gets to the filter and that makes the filter last longer. That's true for other gases that might be in the water as well. So I think it is a water filtration system that is fairly inexpensive that will work in some people's builds. It's designed not to take up very much space and I think you should at least look at it if you're interested in filtered water for your van. So it is the Brita Stream Ultramax. It comes in different sizes, I guess. 25 cup, which I find less, is 45 bucks. So that's what you're talking about here. And of course, you have to replace the filters. There's a light that tells you when the filter needs to be replaced. And I've had one of these things now for six months, and I have not had to replace the filter yet. I will have a link in the show notes. And of course, it will be an affiliate link. So you would be supporting me if you clicked on that link, which I do appreciate because I do have to pay money every month to do this. So every little bit helps. A place to visit. I've been to this place a few times, and it's uh, it's one of my favorite kind of naturey places. That's that's low effort. This is called the Basin. It's in Franconia Notch in Lincoln, New Hampshire. Now, Franconia Notch is famous in New England as being one of the prime touristy places, especially in the fall, and it got that way because that's where the man in the mountain was. New Hampshire can't seem to let go of the fact that they've lost this feature, but in uh, 2003, it actually fell off the mountain. So while you see man in the mountain on all kinds of license plates and street signs and stuff like that, it actually doesn't exist anymore. However, the place is still just as beautiful without this one rock there. And this one spot especially. I mean, honestly, I think this spot is better than the man in the mountain ever was. It's called the basin because it's like a natural granite swimming pool in a river. And that river is the Pemigewasset River. It's one of those New England words that you learn how to pronounce if you live there. Pemigewasset. And it's beautiful. In fact, it's so beautiful that Henry David Thoreau saw it in, I think, 1838, and he said it was probably the most naturally beautiful area in all of New England. I can't say that that's true, but I can say that this is definitely a place to stop. And here's the kind of cool thing. It's right off I-93. It has its own exit, whether you're going northbound or southbound, and it's maybe a five-minute walk from the parking lot at the exit to this place, and it's actually a nature trail. You're walking through the woods this whole time. If you are driving up 93, up New Hampshire to northern New Hampshire, maybe you're going to take the airline to Maine, or maybe you're going to go see the Northeast Kingdom of Vermont, wherever you're finally headed do stop at this exit on 93. It can take 10 minutes. It can take two hours. You can do as much as you want here. And it's an absolutely beautiful spot where you have this, where you have this round pool carved out of solid granite over 15,000 years. It's the kind of place that makes you want to jump in, which you probably could do, but you have to know it's going to be super cold. (laughs) Van Life News. We haven't done news in a while. I think it's time. I actually have some good news for a change. I may have some bad news too, but there is some good news, and I'm going to start right off with 
the good news. And that good news is that lumber futures, that is the price that people are speculating on for the cost of lumber in the future, has plummeted faster than any time in history. That means your sheets of plywood should eventually start to come down in price. And boy, did we need that because lumber was getting crazy, crazy expensive. And why is the price going down? It's because supply is increasing. People are back to work. We're starting to get things going again. And while demand is still high, supply is now going to be able to meet it. So we should start to see prices at Home Depot and Lowe's and Menards come down soon. So yay, some good news. And some other good news, although this is kind of okay news. You may have heard that there's a big chip shortage and a lot of things that need chips, like cars can't be made. In fact, a lot of car makers actually have huge parking lots filled with cars that are completely finished, except they're missing a computer chip, so they can't be sold. Well, one of the largest computer chip companies, which is called Renesis, had a fire and was out of service, and that's what helped cause this, this chip shortage. But they are back in business, and they're at 88% capacity now, which obviously isn't as good as 100%, but it's still something, so we can still be happy about that. And this company supplies chips to Ford, General Motors, Nissan, Honda, Stellantis, not a U.S. company, Tesla, and Volkswagen. So many of those companies make vans, and hopefully this will get more vans and inventory, which will start to bring the prices down. I hope, please. And now some bad news. If you have a Ford Transit Connect between 2013 and 2021, which I think is just about all of them, there's a big recall for 192,000 of them because there's something wrong with their transmissions. So if you have a Transit Connect, head over to Ford's website and see if yours is affected and then get that fixed. It's always a little scary when it's a transmission issue. And apparently what's going on here is that the shifter cable might actually fall off, meaning you can't shift anymore. So they're not going to be replacing the transmission or anything, but they do need to replace this cable and some of the parts to it there. So it shouldn't take that long. I'll have a link in the show notes to on how to check your, your Ford, but definitely you want to get that fixed. And the final story comes from CNBC, and the title says it all. As offices shut down for COVID, workers bought vans and hit the road. And some don't want to return. <laughs> I find this a little bit humorous. I mean, we all know that everybody bought vans and not everybody's going to like them. So we're going to see a lot of vans coming back on the market, which is fine. But a lot of people tried vans due to the pandemic and liked it. <laughs> so they're staying. The offices are saying, hey, come on back to work. And folks are saying, no, it's cool. I'm good. We're good. It's all good. And it's a little bit of a shift that we're going through right now. You know, it's... um. We're in an, a weird time when it comes to getting back to work because not only did we lose 600,000 people in the U.S. alone, we also have folks who've been working remotely and aren't willing to go back to the office. I know for a fact that uh, Royal Caribbean, the cruise company who owns Celebrity, all of their call centers, which are big, we're talking about thousands of people here, have been made permanently at-home positions which also means they could also work from a van. So we're in an interesting time where things are shifting and living in a van is becoming more and more viable from a technology standpoint, even as we're facing more legislation against us. So as Rachel Maddow says, watch this space because it's an interesting time. 
the Aurora Project. Just a quick update. I did post a new video uh, about Aurora, Missouri, which is, it was, Aurora, Missouri was a tough one. You know, I have to come up with a story for each of these Auroras. I'm not just going there saying, look, this is where the stuff is. I want to, I want to like, I want to add some poignancy to it. I want to show that every Aurora is special and thus that every place is special. And Aurora, Missouri was a little bit difficult, but the video is up. I'll have a link in the show notes. Uh, I would love if you guys would watch it. You don't have to, obviously, but it was a lot of work and I hope it doesn't show. I hope it actually just plays like a regular video, but we don't know. I still have a lot more Auroras left to do, and uh, my plan right now is to hit Aurora, Oregon, which is one of the difficult ones because it's so far away, in early September. I will be in Colorado at a star event called the Rocky Mountain Star Stair at early September, and I believe I'm going to drive from there to Oregon because it's so much closer. I, I don't even think it's halfway to be honest, but it's as close as I'm going to get to Oregon as far as my current plans go, and that will be that. Now, as far as the East Coast, Aurora, Maine, and Aurora, North Carolina are also outliers, but I have family in Boston and family in Vermont, so it's not going to be too difficult to get there, but Aurora, North Carolina is going to be another outlier, so I think I'm going to try to do those in July. Yeah, North Carolina in July, sleeping in a van with no air conditioning. That's smart, but that's what that's what's going to have to be done here. So many folks have asked me about meeting up, like saying, hey, you're driving by, why don't we meet up? I would love to do that, but it's very, very difficult because my schedule is so fluid. One time I met up with somebody on one of these Aurora trips, and it was difficult because I had to be in a certain place at a certain time, and that changed how I approached the filming and the exploration part of it, because while I have a general idea of what I'm going to film when I get to the Auroras, it is dictated by what I see. Sometimes I'll find a sign that leads me down a rabbit hole, and that's super important, and having a set time to meet somebody somewhere gets in the way of that. Plus, I'm driving really long distances, so I don't have that much free time. But I am going to make an effort. I know that when I get to Oregon, I am going to arrange some kind of a meetup, because I have lots of friends in Oregon, and it's just kind of a cool place. So stay tuned for that. And I'll try to do one on the East Coast, too, but I'm not really sure when that would be or where at this point. But for those of you engaging with the Aurora Project, thank you very much. I'm having a lot of fun doing it, and I'm learning a lot about this creative process of making video. And for those of you who think this is kind of in the way, I appreciate your patience. Don't worry, it will end eventually. Thanks very much for listening to episode 80. Music, as always, is by Simon Wagg. I'm asking you all to do me a favor and go to the Built to Go Van Life channel on YouTube and subscribe. Please feel free to send me an email at jeff at builttogo.com. That's two T's, not three, not one. Until next time, remember the words of Arthur C. Clarke. If an elderly but distinguished scientist says that something is possible, he is almost certainly right. But if he says that it is impossible, he is very probably wrong.